Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds. So you're a big believer in the in the role of technology as essentially lifting the world's living standards and uh, you know general institutions and structures to a high level. Yeah, and um, it's largely attributable to one simple thing, which is technology makes stuff cheaper. Right. Um, you know, technology makes food cheaper because it makes agriculture more efficient, and it at, makes at every, transportation at every more At every efficient. step of the supply at chain. At every step of the supply chain. Yeah. And, uh, technology, uh, you know, makes clothing cheaper, and technology makes housing cheaper, and like so, all the essential needs that people have become cheaper as a result of technology. So, from that perspective, an Amazon is really no different to a Walmart in the sense that they were applying scale and cost efficiencies and trying to pass them on to consumers. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right, um, and uh, in fact, it might be nowadays more. Uh, more accurate to say Walmart is no different from Amazon, um, <laughs> given how much they've uh, copied a lot of what uh, Amazon is trying to do. Um, but you know, in my particular industry, um, which is finance, and in my particular specialty of that industry, which is uh, quantitative trading, quantitative investing, um, the story is pretty much you know, largely the same. It's, um, uh, if you look at uh, the thing that I guess I'm, I'm most known for, which is high-frequency trading. Um, you know, high-frequency trading is just an automated version of a business that has existed as long as markets have, which right. is called market making. Okay, so uh, the story there is that uh, you know when you have markets, in order for them to properly function, you need people to take both sides of a trade, otherwise trading activity doesn't occur. So what that means you need is that you need a uh, broad base of interest in the particular market and you know, a wide difference of opinions between uh, people who invest in that market or trade in that market. To create a spread. Um, well, to create a difference. Like if everybody agrees that you should only buy something, um, who, who's going to sell it to you? Right, no trading can happen, um, and so that's why you know every time people attempt to set up uh, private markets, which happens a lot in my industry, um, you know people set up these private trading markets called dark pools, which exist only for uh, supposedly uh, long-term uh, institutional investors. And the thing is, like they they have very highly correlated views, and so volume ends up not happening. Yeah, uh, trading ends up not happening, and you end up inevitably. Um, you know, inviting uh, market makers onto your platform. So, you know, this has been known for some time, and that's why there's always been this uh, vital function to properly functioning markets called market making. And what market making is is just a form of intermediation. Um, and uh, you know, what what market makers do is they uh, offer to take the other side of a trade. So. Uh, in order to take the other side of a trade that a long-term investor wants to do, perforce you cannot have a long-term view on that on that security or the, the commodity that you're trading. Because if you do, your your view is going to line up 
very much with the person you're trading against, and you're not going to want to trade with them. This is why technology is important, isn't it? Because the the shorter the shorter term view you can take, the the better your advantage. Well, yeah, that's one of the reasons for sure. Um, you know. Uh, the kinds of considerations that you take into account when formulating a short-term view are very different from the kinds of considerations when you take a long-term view. You care about balancing supply and demand. You try to set uh, the price at a level where um, you know you can carry a limited amount of inventory, and over time you'll get roughly equal proportion of buy shares and sell shares. So the concerns of a market maker are very, very different from the concerns of a fundamental investor, right? right? And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, market makers shouldn't be impugned for having a difference of opinion or a different way of going about their business. It's an entirely different business model. Um, but it, it is a risk-taking business model. Yeah, capital is committed. Market makers take the opposite side of, of the trades that other market participants want to do, and they hold those things in their inventory, and they risk their capital to do that. And their hope is that, that statistically, they will earn what's known as a bid-ask spread. Okay, they do that by offering to buy at slightly below prevailing prices and offering to sell at slightly above prevailing prices. Now that doesn't guarantee you the ability to actually earn that spread because if there's just one-way natural flow, in other words, if everyone wants to buy, then what happens is you know you're selling to everyone on the offer, and then the offer goes up, and you sell, you keep selling all day on the offer. You wind up very very short the security when you're doing that. Uh, you're selling at progressively higher and higher prices, but you're getting killed the whole way up because you're getting shorter and shorter and shorter as the market rises. And so even if you know, you're able to buy back some of those shares, it's going to be at a much higher price. In other words, the bid after the market has gone up a lot is still going to be a lot higher than the offer that you originally sold at you know, uh, when you first started selling. So it's a statistical proposition. Certainly, certainly not the case that on every trade you do, you make the bid-ask spread. Um, now, what's happened is that this used to be a uh, manual business, and you can see it's very information intensive. You have to basically keep track of every order, maintain order books. Yeah. Physically, you know, those those are now electronic objects um, that exist inside computers, but they used to actually be books, physical books huh. of you know. On one side of the page, uh, you, you know, buy all the buy orders that are out there, and on another side of the page, all the sell orders that are out there. That's why it's called an order book, um, for historical reasons. And the market maker's job was to match these orders and take the other side of both and, and intermediate. And um, most of the time, that intermediary function was useless because you know the um, the buyers and sellers could interact with each other naturally. But sometimes there is no buyer, or there's an imbalance of buyers and sellers, and the market maker would come in and take the other side for a period of time. So what, what they would provide is immediacy, right? You could sit there trying to buy at a certain price, and you might have to wait four or five hours before somebody's willing to sell, it, sell to you at that price, if you just you know, limit your universe to natural buyers and sellers. But if you include intermediaries, then what you'll have is somebody who's willing immediately to, you know, um, to sell to you, so long as you're willing to step up and pay a penny more, um, or a tick more, whatever the size of a tick happens to be, um, and then you get your trade done right away. And so the intermediary assumes the the, the time risk associated with when is the other side of the trade going to show up, yeah. right? And so that that risk comes with actual uh, profit and loss because. Um, 
you know, uh, the longer the time is that, that the uh, security or commodity is in the market maker's inventory, the more prices can fluctuate uh, and you know, go for or against, usually against the market maker. So that's, that's what the bid-ask spread is supposed to be. It's supposed to be compensation for taking that risk and providing that service of immediacy. So it's a very valuable function, and markets really just can't function well without this. So, so, so what I'm interested in, and, and, and by the way, I'm having a coffee with uh, Manoj Naram, who's the CEO and founder of Mana Partners in New York City. Uh, how does now the introduction of, you know, at scale machine learning, artificial intelligence start to change the way we've approached those sorts of data driven opportunities? Um, well, we're just very much at the early stages of that, to be honest. Um, but. Uh, you know, to, to understand how technology, technology in general has impacted this business. Market making is a very information intensive task. And so when humans used to do this, they, a, a single human trader could only be responsible for one stock or one security. Yeah. Okay. And um, because they couldn't process a lot of information, they had to basically limit the amount of risk they could take or uh, conversely, charge a much higher bid-ask spread uh, for their intermediary service. Now, as technology has developed and the firms that employed these market makers wanted to compete with each other, uh, they became more automated. And instead of one trader per stock, you could basically um, have one computer program making markets on all stocks simultaneously right. and hedging risk cross-sectionally across your portfolio. So if you're long Microsoft, it's okay because you might be short Oracle against it, okay? And so it was okay to, to get longer and longer Microsoft so, longer as, so long as you could you know, lay off your risk on other securities. And so this became so automated that the size of the bid-ask spread that um, you know, these market-making programs needed to be profitable came way down. Right. And it's not that people are intentionally willing to lower the spread and reduce their profitability. It's that as more and more people become, became automated became to win the trade, they would basically reduce their spreads so that they would win the trade instead of somebody else. And so that's, that's what happens. Technology allows people to compete with each other to provide services for lower cost. That's, that's the exact same story in our industry as it is in every other industry. Not great news if you're an equity trader. No, uh, lots of very highly paid uh, people who used to take home, you know, multi-million dollar bonuses for basically doing little or nothing. Yeah, um, I've seen pictures of like level six at Goldman Sachs, you know, which I think now they just have fintech incubators, but it used to be all the equity traders. Yeah, and there used to be hundreds and hundreds of these market makers, and now there's like a small handful of firms right. um, and very few humans. Basically, they're programmers who improve the, these market making systems, but you know. Uh, just like there's very few retailers anymore of any scale, you know, there's Amazon and Walmart and you know, a handful of others, there's also very few market makers. Market makers are essentially retailers as, as well. Right? What do the smart humans that are still involved in market making do then? There really aren't humans involved anymore unless the market in question is an over-the-counter non-electronic market. Right. But the vast majority of markets that are liquid are liquid because they're electronic. And so those markets, you know, de facto have a very strong or, you know, uh, pervasive component of electronic market making. And so humans just really aren't involved other than in, you know, uh, overseeing or developing these systems. Right. But the systems are making all the markets. So e even in your, in your hedge fund, um, 
essentially, is it the role of the people generating the strategy? How much of that is also shaped by algorithms and data? As a, as a it's one hundred percent. We don't have any traders. Right. Uh, we just have. Uh, is it like know. a black box? Um, so let's talk about that term black box for a second. Um, I think that it's an often misapplied term. Hmm. Um, it's often conflated with, you know, uh, complex or, um, you know. Uh, quantitative, um, but things that are complex and quantitative aren't, you know, necessarily inscrutable. So, to me, that's that's what makes something a black box is if it's inscrutable. In other words, if you can't understand what the hell it's doing, right, right? Uh, or why it's making the decisions it's making. So, no, we don't currently run any models where we don't understand why the model <laughs> is doing what it's doing. Um, the, the models are designed by human beings that have lots and lots of markets experience, and they're you know essentially the models are trying to automate uh, human decision making. Right. So humans make decisions based on information, and um, self-actualized humans it doesn't take a lot of you know reflection to to figure out what kinds of information you use when you're making a decision and to then see which subset of that information you could put into a computer and let the computer access. Now, one thing that humans can do that computers can't do yet, and in my opinion, not for the foreseeable future, is reason based on small data sets, okay? So that's a very big dividing line, not just in our industry, but every industry. Um, the world, as you know, is awash in data. Right? And uh, big data is becoming bigger and bigger by the year. And there's more and more sources of information. Um, so you know, in our industry, we're experiencing a little bit of a revolution when it comes to um, you know, access to non-traditional data, data types. Uh, historically, investors have been interested in relatively few data sets, like earnings expectations for companies out to different period ending dates right. and, and things like that. And, and, and if they were being really exotic, they'd be t using satellite photographs of, you know, Well, yeah, now, now, now you're <laughs> getting into very exotic uh, data sets like satellite imagery, like, uh, you know, the location of uh, shipping vessels, uh, you know, uh, whether they're oil tankers or other kinds of shipping vessels in the oceans. Um, uh, you're getting into uh, e-commerce data, you're getting into search data, you're getting into social media data, like what's in the Twitter firehose. Um, does, does, does all that data, do you think, necessarily generate better insights? Or, I mean, do you just have well, The jury's out on that. Currently, I would say um, no. Right. Um, but, you know, as the state of the art in machine learning advances as the amount of history of these data sets increases and there's more data uh, to, to feed these models. Um, you know, and as frankly, you know, the data becomes better, um, uh, I think yes. But um, at the present time, you know, I think there's a lot of sound and fury about this stuff. Yeah. Not necessarily signifying nothing, signifying something, but not that much. Um, but but when when you think about what the you know the mind of the future algorithmic fund manager, you know who's developing some of these models that you were, you were talking about, yeah. where is where is the unique ability? Like what is the the sort of X factor of skill that 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 will differentiate one from another uh, between managers? Mm. Well. 
Uh, th that's a very good question. And to answer that, I'm going to have to give you a little bit of a backdrop. Perfect. Um, so to me, um, automated investing with computers, um, whether you know it's machine learning or whether you're using traditional statistical models or Bayesian statistics, um, all falls on a spectrum. And human discretionary decision-making also fall, falls on the same spectrum. So the, the way to properly think about the, you know, the units of this axis um, of decision-making is basically the amount of data, okay? So in point of fact, the more data you have, uh, the more human, uh, human beings are powerless to compete with computers. Uh, so basically the way it looks is this. This is, this is, this is, this is kind of how, how things work. The more data there is, you know, so, so in, in the financial industry, when you're talking about trading decisions, right? When you have immense amounts of data uh, to, bring, to bring to bear to analyze, a human being is not going to be able to compete with a computer. Right. And so then it just becomes a matter of, well, what sort of computerized approach do I use? And so there's a subspectrum there. So where you have the greatest amounts of data, um, highly complex nonlinear models will outperform less complex linear models. Okay. So that's where, to me, machine learning um, and you know statistical learning uh, have the biggest role to play, where there's just absolutely massive data sets um, and where there's so much data uh, that's heterogeneous that you couldn't even attempt to build a structural model to account for all of the effects, even if you wanted to. Hmm. Now, um, there's certainly a large set of applications for that in all industries um, and in finance also and in trading also in markets. Um, slightly to the right of that, you know, you have massive data sets um, where, you know, the data is not that heterogeneous and you can easily formulate, uh, you know, structural models that, that, you know, translate how the inputs affect the outputs. Um, and then, you know, linear models tend to be just fine hmm. uh, for those kinds of things. So. Um, that's, I would say, still the lion's share of what happens in quantitative investing. In the future, we'd see we'd probably see more of the statistical learning stuff, but we're still at the early stages of that. Right. Um, further to the right, you have other data sets uh, that are very important to certain kinds of uh, financial decision making. They're not quite as voluminous, um, but still, you know, uh, large enough to merit statistical analysis. And here you know, the structure of your models becomes very important and no two people will build the same model necessarily. Right. And so you have to have strong priors uh, or strong beliefs, uh, to use a less jargony term. Uh, so you have to have strong beliefs about what the nature of the problem is or what the nature of the model is, what the ex-ante structure of the model is. So you're not just turning the dials on the, on the learning algorithms at this point, you're actually thinking... You're, you're, building, you're building the models and you're not letting, it's not a data-driven approach, it's a top-down no. approach, it's yeah. a fundamental approach. Um, so um, this is, you know, what, that there's a lot of different things that, that you could call this uh, particular setup. You could call it uh, Bayesian statistics, you could call it Bayesian learning, you could call it 
Uh, a newfangled term for it would be quantum mental investing. You may have come across that term. Uh, that's definitely on the rise, where people uh, who, are, who do fundamental investing, uh, they obviously have very strong beliefs on what market valuations should be, but they also want to start automating their decision-making process and using more and more data. Right. So that's how you do that. You build you know, and, uh, and structural up, and models. And they update their thesis with time based on how exactly. it's performing. Yeah, so that would basically be uh, an example of Bayesian statistics. And um, so further to, to the right of that, you have data sets that are, that are basically you know, very uh, one-off, uh, spontaneous, ad hoc, whatever. Um, for example, you know, a major terrorist event like 9-11. That was obviously a very market-moving event, but you know, machines just can't reason about what the impact of those things are going to be because they've never happened before. Right. Um, this is your classic black swan type. You, you know, black swan events certainly go into, uh, into this category, but it's not just black swan events. Uh, for example, um, you know, in uh, 2008, after, you know, the financial crisis, the Fed announced uh, a stimulus program. The Fed of the Treasury Department announced a, st a stimulus program, TARP, right? Um, and... Um, so you couldn't go back and look at a large sample of historical TARP-like events to forecast what's going to happen. But you know, everybody who's a reasonable discretionary analyst would know that that's going to have a stimulative effect on the economy. I personally, even though I'm a quant, loaded up on stocks in my personal account, and I still hold them to this day. And I've made several thousand percent on some of the, some of these stocks, right? Could, could if you could, if a computer, you know, looking at historical data, couldn't have predicted the two thousand eight stimulus? It's not it, that they couldn't have predicted the stimulus; it's they it couldn't have predicted what the market's response to that stimulus would be. That's what that's what I mean. Right. So, um, you know, that that's sort of my point is that uh, what the human brain is still much better at than computers is open ended decision-making based on small, uh, small data sets. Is that because we have better context? It's because of context. It's basically uh, what humans are good at is taking uh, experience uh, you know, from one domain and transplanting it to another domain. Right. Right. And this is not the same as transfer learning, really, because it's a totally, at a totally different scale than... I mean, you know, deep learning people will have you believe <laughs> that uh, you know, computers can theoretically do this. Um, you can count me as a skeptic. Um, I don't think that I would trust a machine anytime soon to make uh, a decision on what to do with a single data, you know, a single piece of data that is novel and has never been seen before. Right. Right. Uh, where the, in, in other words, where the time series of information that you have to make a decision on has one observation in it. Yeah. Right. You know, single observation data sets actually constitute the majority of what's actionable in the markets. Um, most of the data that you see in the markets uh, that's interesting is one-off, right? And so that's why there's still, to this day, a very large role for human beings in this business. But, you know, there is a mountain of data out there that does have time series information associated with it and does have you know uh, both historical uh, dimension to the to the data and a panel dimension to the data where statistics of one kind or another come into play hmm. whether it's classical statistics or whether it's bayesian statistics or whether it's 
you know, uh, what we now call uh, statistical learning. Um, all of these are just you know, statistical models and you need data to drive these things. So depending on how much data there is and how well-structured or unstructured the problem is, that's what calls for different kinds of method methodologies or approaches. But you know, the fact is that a lot of decisions are made with very limited data and machines just have not advanced uh, enough to do that. So you, know, you can look at all the progress that machines have made, like autonomous driving. Do you have any idea how much data it takes to, to train an autonomous driving machine? Mm. Um, you know, so what about the first time that a human being stepped into an airplane and drove an airplane without killing himself, right? The Wright brothers or whoever came before them to try this. Um, can you imagine a machine doing that? Like, where are the, you know, where, where's the mountain of data that you're gonna train this machine to do that? So this is an example of what I'm talking about. Uh, clearly the brain of whoever is doing that you know, was able to transplant knowledge gained from one domain to another domain. But or somebody, the, the very yeah. first person who tried snowboarding, right, was clearly able to trans, transplant skiing uh, expertise into snowboarding expertise, right? Whereas, you know, good luck doing that sort of thing with, with a computer. Um, but when you look at, I guess, the amount of money that's now flowing into these sort of uh, very algorithmically driven investment funds like the, the Two Sigma, Citadel, and you know, Man Group to some extent. Yeah. Um, is their approach to rely on those human judgment around those single point data things or are they really just trying to scale up? Is it even quantum mental as you say or is it really just the, the, you know, the far to the left? Everyone is different. Automated? Every firm is different. Um, and you know, it's easy to get carried away in thinking that quantitative trading firms are purely automated and are therefore all the same. Right. But the thing is that human beings are the designers of these algorithms. They don't build themselves yet, at least. <laughs> um, and so, so you're actually betting on the human beings designing the model. Absolutely, yeah. uh, you're betting on the human beings and these firms have economies of scale just like firms in the real economy. Um, and they have different things that they're good at. Um, and so, you know, even if you take a talented uh, human being, they may do better at one firm than another firm based on the infrastructure that that firm has that they can leverage. Um, so that's why there's, that's one of the many reasons why there's room for multiple firms and multiple people and why, you know, the all encompassing AI, uh, you know, of, of, of trading hasn't arisen yet. I mean, there's, there's no such thing and it's not gonna happen for some time if it ever happens. Um, what about you? When, when you're looking for somebody to join your team, what is the sort of the mindset or the skill set or the kind of mental framework that you're hiring for? You know, I mean, I don't context. get caught, caught too much. I don't get uh, caught up too much in machine learning. And uh, to me, that's what investors care about right now. It's sort of a fad. But, you know, AI has gone through many of these boom bust cycles in the past. Um, and you know what, this one still might be a bust also. There's a lot of successes like, you know, self-driving vehicles and, um, you know, personal uh, digital assistants and, and things like that. A lot of success cases that AI can point to right now. Yeah. But I would not classify the markets as one of those yet. Um, so, you know, there, there, was a, there was a brief wave where people tried to use things like simulated annealing and genetic algorithms in the markets in the 90s. and um, you know, every few years, 
uh, AI gets rebranded as something else, and now it's currently branded as machine learning. And you know, that's not to say the techniques don't get more powerful and, the, and that they have more data to bring to bear to. to um, well, leaving the AI models, side aside, just you know, even just on the technology data piece, yeah, what, so what do you look for? I really, I really focus on automation. I look for essentially being able to scale myself and a very small team uh, of people by building enabling tools and technologies so that I don't need a legion of 50 C++ developers to, to manage a large set of strategies. Right. So, so you're trying to automate basically I would like to have you know, a very large trading firm that has very few people in it. Right, um, and you know, uh, just like Amazon has way fewer employees than Walmart, right? Um, it's a much more automated firm. Um, you know, I would like to do the same sort of thing with quantitative trading. I think that's what the the promise of of this business is. And, you know, uh, and that's already possible. I've been doing that sort of thing for years in the hedge fund business, where basically. You know, I can be autonomous, build all the models myself, and I and you know what the what the tech staff does essentially is basically build the enabling technologies that I need to be able to do that, right? In high frequency trading, that's uh, a lot more elusive. It's it's harder to do that. Um, so, um, you know, what you see typically is high frequency trading firms employ legions of C developers, right? We're actually you know, experimenting with uh, with a different approach, which is basically uh, again uh, having a very small set, as few as one um, strategist, being able to build highly performant uh, trading strategies on their own without the assistance of fifty C plus plus developers. Oh. Well, because the developers that you hire build the tools that you need. Right. To you know, you can you think of these tools as domain-specific languages, specifically for developing these kinds of strategies. Right. So, they give that you all the flexibility that you need. Yeah. Um, they they, they the, the languages that they we're talking about expose the right semantics that you need, uh, the right capabilities that you need, without losing performance. So they exhibit C like performance, you know, uh, in terms of the of the trading algorithms and the latency of the trading algorithms and so forth. You you, you retain all of those things that are necessary while also uh, getting the scaling that comes from being able to express your ideas very succinctly um, and translate those into, into production trading. So um, to me, that, that's how I think of quantitative trading. I think of it as a technology-driven investing business. So you do the same thing that other hedge funds do, or you do the same thing that other trading firms do or market-making firms do. Just more automated. So philosophically, a great strategist in, in, in that context in the 21st century is no really different to one 10 or 20 years ago. They're just more enabled and leveraged by automation. Yeah, I mean, the idea is if you have a good strategist, why would you want them to just make one strategy? You'd want them to do as many things as possible and not spend all their time managing one thing, right? Um, and the thing is, like, good strategists are very hard to come by and they're very highly coveted, right? And uh, if you have a whole bunch of them, and you have a mediocre year, and you can't pay them an arm and a leg, they're going to get poached by, by your competition. And all of those things are very, very painful. Um, so you know, it calls for automation. It calls for basically scaling the best people um, and um, endowing them with all the capabilities that they need yeah. to, to. It's going to be fascinating. To, it's sort of a question ultimately whether. It's a different approach to applying technology. Yeah, it's, it is. It's, but it's whether you, you keep the very talented Top Gun pilot in the you know, billion dollar 
you know, fighter jet or you just put the drone in. You know, if, if you ultimately believe that, um, that there are some sort of nuanced situations where you want to augment at a very high level a I mean, I don't, think, I don't think there's anything universal about what we're trying to do. In my case, the reason why the firm is set up this way is that I have millions of trading ideas. I mean, maybe that's an exaggeration, but I certainly have hundreds. Um, <laughs> hundreds of ideas for strategies. And, you know, um, so it behooves me to figure out how to do as many of these ideas as I can. And um, if I only had two or three ideas, what I'd probably do is implement those ideas and then hire all kinds of other people who have lots of trading ideas and you know, uh, add those ideas into the mix. But in my case, I have so many ideas, I wanna basically spend you know, the rest of my time in the business implementing the ideas that I have um, and scaling myself so that I can explore even more ideas. Um, so that, that's the reason why we've set things up this way. But you know, other people have different strengths and you know, some people are really, really good at asset raising and asset aggregation. And, you know, there it behooves them to find as many ideas and source as many ideas as they possibly can from other people and supply them with capital. Um, you know, so uh, every, every firm has, every firm, every individual has a different set of strengths. And I think that one of the great things about um, the society we live in and the age we live in is that people are empowered these days to kind of you know, uh, follow through with their particular strengths. Well, Manoj, thank you very much for your time. It's been really fascinating speaking to you. Sure. Thanks for being on the show. My pleasure. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash between worlds.